and welcome back to Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. I'm Emma. I'm Tash. And I'm Becky. Bonsoir. Guten Tag. Buongiorno. (laughs) (laughs) So international. How's everyone doing? Marvellous. Great. Becky? Good, it's bank holiday tomorrow, so no work. Oy oh, oy. lucky. And instead of being drunk out in a bar somewhere, I'm here recording with you fine ladies. Well, you are that's amazing. more fun. It, that's exactly. Way, way fun and no headache the next day. No, oh, no hangover. Win-win. Hangovers are the worst the older you get, aren't they? Yeah. They're horrific. Uh, they're just not worth it for me anymore. I think I've I've had enough now anyway. Same. I mean, lies. I will absolutely drink again, but same. <laughs> same right now. <laughs> oh, right, Tash. Yeah? Turns out he was married? Turns out he was married. Right, I'll put the jingle on. Oh, yeah. Sit down, you boys and girls, and everyone in between. Story time. Tash has stories for you, both funny and obscene. Did she swipe right, swipe left, or find out he had a rash? We're about to find out, because it's Tinder with Tash. Thank you, JT, for that sweet, sweet jingle. Guess what, girls? What? Started with a Tinder match. (laughs) (laughs) So it started with a Tinder match. This was a non-photoed profile. Well, that's suspicious, isn't it? Definitely suspicious, but I like the suspense sometimes. They're the kind of profiles I match on for like banter. You, You live on the edge, you, don't you? I am wild. So this guy, I don't think he had much on his profile at all, to be honest. And we matched, he started talking to me and actually seemed really nice and normal. And he just said it was for work purposes that he didn't have a profile picture. I am completely aware this is probably a lie, but you know, at the time I was like, okay, cool, whatever. So we were just messaging backs and forwards. He's from a similar industry uh, to me. So kind of got in terms of like, a potential meet up that what, was he a Russian sex worker as well? That's a bit of a coincidence. <laughs> His name was Natasha and he was a Russian sex worker too. <laughs> um no, he's actually a chef. It's a very good Russian accent there. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. Oh, because it's, it's my real accent. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he was similar like service industry. So we kind of spoke about work a bit. Service industry. (laughs) (laughs) The restaurant service industry. Mm -hmm. So we spoke about work, bonded over like crap members of staff and lack of members of staff and, and things like that. We moved over to WhatsApp quite quickly. And he had a profile picture, which is fine. He also had his full name, which is fine. I don't really do that because I don't want everyone being able to stalk me on social media. But Exactly. Mm. This geezer did. 
I was actually telling him a little about the podcast and he was telling me about his restaurant and things like this. So I obviously Googled his restaurant and Googled him. Yeah. He went on to tell me how we have children similar ages. He would see them on a regular basis. Like, you know, he seemed all right. It all seemed plausible, as plausible as anything is on so on um, dating apps. And then he told me, yep, he'd been single for four years. So I was like, okay, cool. He asked me out for a drink. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Sounds, sounds good to me. Then I started digging. So I Instagrammed him, found his page, found a picture of a nine-month-old baby. I don't have a nine-month-old baby, mm-hmm. which would tell me that we don't have children at similar ages. Mm, well, no. <laughs> also saw a Happy Mother's Day post to the best mummy and wife in the world. See, I'm sorry, but it's always the men that seem perfect, that are absolute pigs. Yep. Yeah. Obviously, then I go on a deep diving stalking fest. Yeah. It's merited, deserved. You know, stalking him, then I'm stalking her to work out the dynamic. Are they really still together? He might just be a great co-parenting, celebrating the fact that she is a great mum, whatever. I mean, from the looks of their social media, they're very, very much together. So I just thought, okay, he's like loser, whatever. Stop talking to him. Then I go into work the next day and I'm just talking to my manager and the chef at work. And I look up and on the pass, which is where you pass food over, it's called the pass. Um, on the top of that is a book with said man's name and surname on because he is a chef and seemingly quite a good chef, a good enough chef to have a book out. Oh. (laughs) So then I Google said person. Turns out he's a very naughty boy (laughs) and, yeah, has been uh, as a suspended sentence for not being a very nice person. And it was a very lucky escape, I should say. Like, not only was he married, yeah. he was also almost a convict. Almost a convict. I was like, okay, cool. So, uh, yeah, maybe not then. No. Oh, God, what a creep. Uh, I know. So we had set, like, a date. you're going to say, in... oh, so we had sex. We had set a date for the wedding. <laughs> we had set a date for um, drinks And he texts me the day before and I just sent him a message saying not really into guys that lie about the fact that they're married and have actually got three children and not two and also not into criminals um, and stated the crime that he had done Um, and he didn't reply to me. Busted! Yeah. At the bottom of the text, I said, you didn't need to lie to me. I'm not your wife. I just feel like you're on Tinder. Be honest about if you've got a wife and then people can make informed decisions or not. Don't drag somebody into your seedy affairs without giving people the full knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Like there are many women out there that will happily sleep with married men and don't care. 
but I do believe that they should be informed in that information. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, just a bit of a scoundrel, really. So he's um he's dead to us, and uh, on to the next. On to the next. <laughs> what do you think you've got for us next week? Do you know yet? I I actually do know what I've got, and it, it is we're, we're back to the funny dates. We're back okay. to the funny stories rather than convicts and uh, sleaze Creeps. bags. Yeah, yeah, we're back to something funny. Well, thanks, Tash. It's a power. We need some funny. After yeah. all the criminals. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for criminals, Mum. I promise. I promise. <laughs> um, just forgot completely that we didn't do the song answers from last week. Oh, yeah. And we spoke about it before coming on. Um, before coming on air. <laughs> we did. And then I forgot. So I got two answers. Becky, what was your song, sweetie? Oh, it was uh, Shallow by Lady Gaga. Um... Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, that's the one. I was like, that actor. <laughs> yeah, that guy. That I find incredible attractive. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is fit, isn't he? E- even us an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was that song. So Tash, did you get any answers? Oh, I did. Fantavia, you are smashing it, girl. Go on, Fantavia. I got Nicole. Well done, Nicole. Go on, go on. And guess who? Ruth. 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 Whoop, whoop, whoop. Keeping up the winning streak. Whoop. Go on, girls. So that's it. Well done. Well done, everybody. Yes. What? What's the word? Bravissimo. Yeah. Is that right? I don't know if it's uh, right, but I heard people say that before. Well, I'm going to say it's right. I said it with confidence. Well, kind of confident. Yeah. Bravissimo. Bravissimo. Uh Right. I think it's me to start this week. Is it? Yeah. I'm going to talk about a little bit of demon possession. Oh. That's exciting. Well, I thought I hadn't spoken about it for a while. So, you know, let's dip a little toe. Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, do it, do it. I'm going to be talking about somebody called Emma Schmidt. So it's weird, there's an Emma talking about an Emma. She was also known as Anna Uckland and Mary X, but it's probable that her real name was Emma Schmidt. Emma was born in 1882 in Marathon, Wisconsin, Records are unable to find anything about her mother, so it is presumed that she died in the early 1800s, leaving Emma to be brought up by her father, Jacob. He was, by all accounts, an alcoholic, a womanizer, and it's even said that he may have attempted to sexually abuse Emma. Scumbag. Well, yeah. He was having an affair with his wife's sister, so Emma's aunt, called Mina, during the time that her mother was still alive. Mina did not like Emma at all. So, all in all, poor Emma had a pretty horrendous upbringing. Poor love. Mina was actually believed to be a witch in the community due to her knowledge of herbs, and she was suspected of poisoning Emma on multiple occasions. Oh, what? What, like, how poison? It was suspected that she was cursing her with herbs. Oh, Around the age of 14, Emma began showing signs that something wasn't quite right. She was a devoted Catholic, thanks to her mother, 
Her father despised the Catholic Church, but Emma had continued attending church well after her mother's death. But little by little, she began finding it almost impossible to enter the church. She would be made sick by the Holy Communion, and she had urges to destroy the holy water font or to attack any spiritual advisors. So I had to look up what a holy water font was. It's like where they... um... Keep the holy water. (laughs) Yeah, like where they take the children to be baptised, isn't it? Yeah. She had voices inside of her telling her to do the most unmentionable things, sexual things, completely against her nature. She thought she was losing her mind and started seeing many doctors, even the top specialists, thinking she was going to be diagnosed with hysteria or nervous spells. But no. The doctor said that she didn't show any signs of nervousness or physical illness at all, which is really quite refreshing because back then you would expect them to go, yep, hysterical, go to the lunatic asylum. Yeah. Have a dildo. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Funny you should mention dildos. (laughs) But they didn't. They were like, no, she's completely normal. Okay. She went on. For years like this, she did turn to the church and an exorcism was performed. Oh, for once. Well done, church, <laughs> for once. But they didn't yeah. do a good job, obviously. It, no, they didn't, it didn't relieve her much. She understood languages that she'd never learnt. She could tell when the priest was blessing her in the church Latin and began to foam at the mouth. She knew instantly if an object given to her had been blessed without her knowledge and became enraged, but remained calm if given something that hadn't been blessed. It was many years afterwards that finally the church was fully convinced that Emma Schmidt was possessed. She was now 40. So it started when she was 14. Blimey. And she went through all those years of having this awful stuff going on in her head up until she was 40. That sounds exhausting. Sounds horrendous. Father Theophilus became involved. He had performed many exorcisms in the past and so the bishop entrusted him with Emma's case. Little did he know that he was about to be confronted with one of the most severe cases of possession he had ever encountered and it would take a toll on him mentally as well as physically. It was decided that the best place for the exorcism would be in Erling, Iowa, far away from where Emma lived. This was to keep the affair private and to protect her from people's gossip, from being pointed out as that girl who once had the devil inside her. Father Theophilus... That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Father Theophilus. It is. Father Theophilus asked his old friend, Reverend Pastor of Erling, the Reverend Joseph Steiger, if he would accept the exorcism to take place in his parish. Although reluctant at first, he agreed that the best place would be the sister's convent. Everything was organised and Emma was brought by train to Erling. Father Theophilus also travelled by train and was to be picked up by Pastor Steiger. But he ran extremely late as his car just would not cooperate. Even though it had absolutely nothing wrong with it, it lacked any speed at all. He apologised for his lateness, but Father... I'm just going to call him Father Theo. 
Yeah. Father Theo just replied that he would have been more surprised that everything had gone smoothly. The devil will do everything to foil our plans, he said. He then blessed the car and prayed the entire way to the rectory. And the car ran as usual with no further issues. Emma had also arrived without any problems at the convent, and so the exorcism could start in the morning. However, all was not well at the convent. The sisters had prepared an evening meal for Emma, and thinking it wise, they had sprinkled it with holy water. Emma realised instantly and started growling like a cat. Oh my god. And refused to eat anything. The food was then replaced with non-blessed portion and Emma calmed down. The next day, after Holy Mass, the pastor and father arrived at the convent ready to start the exorcism. They knew the devil would put up a fight and that they were looking at at least a few days before it gave in and returned to hell. They did not know at the time what they were about to face was much, much worse than what they could ever imagine. Emma was held down on an iron bed by the strongest nuns in the convent. <laughs> Picture in these really hench nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Now's our time to shine, guys. <laughs> Christ compels you. Yeah. <laughs> it just really actually reminds me of when I was giving birth to Esme, I had like this midwife and she was so like big and stern and like just not I'm sure she was very good at her job but she was like a no-nonsense person and I was just so young and in labor and I just remember thinking after you could have been nice to me and then uh, after she she did say to me oh you did very well didn't you (laughs) (laughs) yeah because you were too scared to not Jesus (laughs) yeah I can imagine she would be that nun there. Yeah. I could just, for some reason, I imagine her to be Russian. She'd be like, I'm here to scare babies out of womb. I was imagining Mrs. Trunchbull. <gasps> yeah, <but> Russian. <laughs> well, there was more than one, so we can have them all. <laughs> so we've got these buff nuns, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buff nuns. <laughs> Hench. Yeah. They're the ones that chop wood as well. Not not that they're sexy. Yeah, they were like, everyone, no guns allowed, apart from these guns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, should we be taking the pick out of nuns? No, I don't think. I think I'm worshipping the nuns. Awesome nuns. Uh, I, I'm jealous. Yeah. They call the buff nuns. Yeah. And... They tied her clothes tightly around her to prevent her from getting naked because... God forbid. Nudity. (laughs) She's in a convent. Behave. The minute Father Theo began praying, Emma fell unconscious for the entire exorcism. And it wasn't until the very end when the father said, in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, that Emma's eyes shot open. And she levitated at lightning speed to the opposite wall, where she clung to the wall like she had claws. Oh, I can see that. It took all the nun's strength to pull her... And that's saying something, because yeah. they're proper, proper. buff. <laughs> yeah. It took all the nun's strength to pull her down and place her back on the bed. I bet they're all sweaty and gleaming, and their tan really showing off their muscles. <laughs> 
And I bet they're shitting themselves, to be fair, because somebody's just been attached to a wall. So anyway, Emma's back in the bed. The prayers resumed, and the most horrifying noises of shrieking and howling like a pack of wild animals came out of Emma's mouth. Everyone in the room was terrified, except Father Theo, who shouted, Silent Satan! Keep quiet, you infamous reprobate! Go on, Father Theo. You tell Satan where to go. (laughs) But the horrendous noises emanating from Emma continued so loud that people on the street rushed to the convent, wondering what on earth was going on. It sounded like someone was being murdered at the same time as butchering pigs. Can you kind of picture that? I can. Oh, it's very squealy. Yes. Of course, news spread like wildfire that someone at the convent had the devil in them. As scared as people were on the street listening to such unearthly sounds, it was nothing compared to the fear felt inside that room. Emma's body contorted in in inhuman ways, all whilst making the most gruesome animalistic noises. The nuns and the pastor had to take breaks just to get away from it, because they felt like they were going mad. The only one that never left was Father Theo. He was used to the sounds and sights from the other exorcisms he had performed. With the permission from the bishop, he wore a pix to protect himself. So a pix is like a little, after what I've gathered, a vial that you can put like the blood of Christ and the body of Christ in. And you wear that like on your chest, I think around your neck or something. That's kind of what I gathered it was. Yeah, that is what it is. Oh, religious cash over here knows. Well, you know. Emma would vomit huge amounts of foul stuff aiming at the pigs, but it seemed that the devil was not allowed to touch it as no matter how much she vomited or spat, she missed it every time. They actually began to worry for her life as she was hardly eating anything, just a little water or a spoonful of milk every day, and yet she was consistently vomiting or shitting huge amounts of filth with the most ungodly stench. The quantities would fill buckets. It was humanly impossible for such quantities to come out of a body. And yet they did, constantly. She would vomit up tobacco leaves and other random substances that of course she had not consumed, and yet was forced to puke them up up to 10 or 20 times a day. That is awful, isn't it? No, I hate being sick. Makes me cry. Buckets full, ten times a day. And shit. And shit. Tobacco. That is shocking, Why is she being sick tobacco leaves? Well, because the devil's inside her and he loves a cigar. He loves a good cigar, but he chomps them rather than smokes them. Eats them like (laughs) what's-its. It was important to find out just how many demons had possessed poor Emma and to get their names to gain power over them. It was obvious there were multiple inside her, as the voices that came through were all different. Some, most definitely satanic. Others sounded human. They all spouted the most vile and vulgar words at the father, pastor and sisters. With such hatred, it was hard to bear. Father Theo commanded in the name of Jesus how many of you are in there. The answer came that there were multiple, and then Emma began foaming at the mouth and howling like a pack of hyenas and lions, followed by meowing like a cat and bellowing like a cow being slaughtered. 
Eventually, the father began to get the names and find out the reasons for her possession. The following is a word-for-word quote of the demon's own conversation with Father Theo. Devil barking like the hound of hell. Beelzebub. You call yourself Beelzebub? Are you not Lucifer, the prince of the devils? No, not the prince, but one of the leaders. You were therefore not a human being, but you are one of the fallen angels, who with selfish pride wanted to be like unto God. Yes, that is so. Ha! How we hate him. Why do you call yourself Beelzebub if you are not the prince of devils? Enough! My name is Beelzebub. From the point of influence and dignity you must rank near Lucifer, or do you hail from the lower choir of angels? I once belonged to the seraphic choir. How long have you been torturing this poor woman? Since her fourteenth year. How dared you enter into that innocent girl and torture her like that? Ha! Did not her own father curse us into her? But why did you, Beelzebub, alone take possession of her? Who gave you that permission? Don't talk so foolishly. Don't I have to render obedience to Satan? Then you are here at the direction and command of Lucifer. Well, how could it be otherwise? He's such a dick. Just fucking say yes. (laughs) How can I not be anywhere without without Lucifer saying yes? Oh, well, is it Lucifer? Oh, maybe not. Such a wanker. Fucking hell. Get to the point, idiot demon. (laughs) Don't possess me. Father Theo now wants us to know why her father would have damned her and he only got the short answer of, you can ask him, leave me in peace for once. So dramatic. He's the Karen of the underworld. (laughs) Someone's got to be. Is then the father of the woman also present as one of the devils? And since when? What a foolish question. He has been with us ever since he was damned. A terrible sneering laughter followed, full of malicious joy. Then I solemnly command in the name of the crucified saviour of Nazareth that you present the father of this woman and that he give me the answer. A deep, rough voice announced itself, which had already been noticed alongside the voice of Beelzebub. Are you the unfortunate father who has cursed his own child? With a defiant roar, no. Who are you then? I am Judas. What? Judas? Are you Judas Iscaro, the former apostle? Thereupon followed a horrible, woeful, prolonged, yes, I am the one. This was howled in the deepest voice. It set the whole room a-quivering so that out of pure fright and horror, the pastor and some of the nuns ran out then followed a disgusting exhibition of spitting and vomiting as if Judas was intending to spit at his lord and master with all his might, or as if he had in mind to unloose his inner waist and filth upon him. Finally, Judas was asked, What business have you here? To bring her to despair so that she will commit suicide and hang herself. She must get the rope. She must go to hell. Poor woman. Yeah, I know. Is it then a fact that everyone that commits suicide goes to hell? Rather not. Why not? Ha! We devils are the one that urge them to commit suicide to hang themselves, just as I did myself. Do you not regret that you have committed such a despicable deed? A terrible curse followed. Let me alone. 
don't bother me with your fake god. It was my own fault. Then he kept on raving in a terrible manner. It has to be noted that this whole conversation was carried out in multiple languages and each time the demons responded correctly. Father Theo started praying again when another voice came out, a deep, healthy-sounding voice that you could tell had once been human. It was Jacob, Emma's father. He then admitted that he had tried to force Emma into an incestuous relationship, but she had always refused him, and so he had cursed her and wished the devils would enter her to ruin her body and soul. Ironically, he said that he could have been saved in death, despite his sordid behaviour in life, but the fact that he had given his own daughter to the demons had damned him too, and so he now resided in hell. So now, even in death, he was still thinking of ways to molest and torture his daughter. He sniggered, saying that he was inside his own daughter. He would never be forced out. To which the father replied, But you will obey the power of Christ and the Holy Trinity will send you back to the pits of hell. Jacob emitted a loud roar and screamed, No, no, spare me. The prayers continued and another voice made itself known. That of Mina, Jacob's mistress. She had been damned for her affair with her sister's husband, but also admitted to murdering four little ones. Now, it is presumed that these were her own children and that she might have been talking about abortion, but that's just kind of presumed. There's no proof to that. She came across as being filled with hate and vomited and spat constantly at the father and the pastor, so much so that they had to wipe off the fluids to continue the exorcism. Now this all sounds like it happened in one day, but these conversations happened over many, many days, broken by moments of prayer that would cause hours and hours of screaming and howling from Emma's mouth. Her body was also under constant attack. Her really thin face would swell up and make her eyes bulge out of their sockets whilst her lips became the size of a man's hands. Her whole body would swell to such an extent that the nuns feared she would actually burst. One time her stomach became so hard and heavy that the bed would bend to the floor. The pastor was losing his wits with the noise, the stench, the vulgarity of it all, all day in and day out. He even began to despise Father Theo, even though he'd been his lifelong friend. He eventually admitted to the father his feelings and wished he had never given consent for the exorcism to be carried out in his parish. The father knew that this was the devil's doing and told him to leave the pastor alone as he was not hurting him, in the slightest, that it was all the father's doing, it was him that he should hate. But the demon replied that it was his fault for accepting to help Emma and that he would make him pay for it. The pastor replied, he cannot be harmed as he is under the protection of God the Almighty. The demon sneered and said, wait until Friday and we'll see about your God. And sure enough, that Friday, the pastor was called out to a dying parishioner. The husband had tried to pick the pastor up himself, but his car wouldn't start no matter what he tried. So he got the pastor to use his own car. On his way back, a large black cloud appeared just before the car got to a bridge. It was like he'd been blindfolded and he crashed into the bridge railings, leaving the wreck tottering between the bridge and the fall into the river below. The neighbouring farmer had heard the crash and came to take the pastor to the doctors. 
He had nothing but a few scratches and bruises, but his beloved car was wrecked beyond recognition. Upon entering the room at the convent, the devil began laughing hysterically and asked him about his sparkling new car. The others in the room looked confused, but the pastor, shaken and pale, confirmed that it was true. He had crashed his car, and the devil added, and that's just the start of the fun. Sometimes the voices came from Emma's mouth, other times as she lay unconscious they would come from somewhere inside her, without her lips moving in the slightest. The voices would tell the room about each person's sins from their childhood, causing much embarrassment, but further showing his knowledge of things Emma herself could not have known. This continued for three weeks relentlessly, the demons refusing to leave poor Emma, who now looked like she was surely going to die at any minute. The nuns and the pastor were exhausted, and Father Theo looked like he'd aged 20 years in those three weeks. Imagine every day from morning to night hearing and seeing nothing but screaming and insults and excrement. It was too much for even the strongest. On the last day in December of 1928, Emma shot straight up from bed, stood upright with only her heels touching the bed. The howls of demons shouting could be heard. Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell, hell, hell. This was repeated many times until the voices began to fade and silence regained the room. Emma opened her eyes and said, My Jesus, mercy, praise be Jesus Christ. Everyone in the room cried with joy, knowing the ordeal was over and that Emma would survive. What they hadn't noticed was the foul stench that now filled the room. They rushed to open the windows to get the fresh air circulating. It was the last goodbye from the demons. The year afterwards, all the nuns, so traumatised by the event, asked to be transferred to another convent. And there you go. The exorcism of Emma Schmidt. Well, that was a ride, wasn't it? Yeah, it just... <laughs> I think I'd have given up. I'd have been like, well, I've been at this for 24 hours. I, I give up now. I don't think I would have gone on for three weeks. That poor woman. Yeah, awful. Well, poor everyone involved. That sounded horrific. Yeah. Jokes aside... I did read that The Exorcist was based on this, but then I'd also read that The Exorcist was based on a case that I covered right at the beginning, Roland Doe. Yeah. So I don't know if he used a bit of both stories. I don't know. But yeah. there was a lot of similarities there, wasn't there? Yeah. Just with all the vomiting and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, that's me done. Thanks, Thank babe. You um, whilst we listen to a trailer i'm gonna go for a wee enjoy your wee and everyone who's listening enjoy the trailer hey there i'm tara and i'm jessica and together we co-host the podcast three spooked girls if you love the paranormal or murder join us on mondays for full-length episodes where we discuss our favorite paranormal stories and true crime cases and join us again on Thursdays for our mini-sodes called Stabby Snippets, where we tell you all about true crimes happening in the news. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, wherever the hell else you listen to your pods at. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the handle at 3 Girls. Come and hang out with us and get your spooky on while we scare the hell out of you.
You got a story for us? Yeah, I do have a story for you guys. <laughs> so, how I came across this, I don't even know. But I was so surprised. Well, I wasn't expecting the story that I would end up reading. So I was like, yep, yeah, need to do this one. So here we go. My story is based in Japan. So I apologize for butchering everyone's name. That's fine. I just butchered all the God stuff. So all the God stuff. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, everyone, I apologize. My story is about a woman called Seder Abe or Aber. She was born in 1905 and she was the seventh child of eight children. So she had seven brothers and sisters. And she came from an upper middle class family in Tokyo's Kanda neighborhood. Sadly, only four of the children would survive into adulthood. And of those that survived, Seda was the youngest. So Seda's father, who was originally from the Shiba prefecture, had been adopted into the Aber family to help with the business, which he eventually inherited. He was 52 years old at the time of Seda's birth, and he would be described as an honest and upright man with no brushes with the law, just pretty, you know, upstanding citizen although some of his acquaintances reported him to be somewhat self-centered with a taste for extravagance but I kind of think well he's a successful businessman I think you're allowed to be a little bit extravagant with your money you kind of deserve it because you've earned it yeah yeah no red flags really at the minute with the dad and also the mum had no you know not a criminal record or anything like that. No moral blemishes. So Seda's mother doted on her because she was the youngest surviving child and she was allowed to basically do as she wished. Her mother encouraged Seda to take lessons in singing and playing the shamisen, which I don't know what that is. It's an instrument. But this instrument was closely associated with geisha, and also the lower class sex workers as well. So at the time, it was the geisha women that were singers. Geishas were considered to be glamorous celebrities at the time. I was going to say, they were held quite highly in society, weren't they, geishas? Yeah, they were like, yeah, like the pop stars of then. But also, because she's like upper middle class... The geishas are still a step down from them, even though they're more well known. And geisha, you're not—they're not all high-class sex workers and stuff. Like you have to start at the bottom and move your way up. Yeah. So you can be like a like a lower-class one. So it's not many people reach the, you know, the the glamorous side of that. Yeah. Seda really liked the image, like the all oh, the makeup that they wore and she just really looked up to her and really wanted to become one when she was younger. I mean, they were beautiful, to be fair. Seda's brother, Shintaro, was a known womanizer. And after he got married, he ran away with some of his parents' money. So that wasn't very good. Not cool. 
after that, Seda's sister, Taruko, was known to have had several lovers. Taruko. Oh no, scandalous scandal. But back then, it was quite scandalous for a woman to behave in such a way. And how dare a woman have sex drive? I mean, you say back then, it's still bloody frowned upon now, isn't it? Well, yeah. yeah. What do you think the patriarch of the family, so the dad, would choose to punish his daughter? Well, going on what you said earlier, I'm guessing a dildo. (laughs) No. Oh. So... No, we'll get to that a bit later. But he he banished her to become a dildo. That's <laughs> what you're saying. No. He sent Taruko to work in a brothel. What? Which apparently at the time was not an uncommon way to punish female sexual promiscuity. What, make them shag more people? Yeah. How dare you shag people? Go shag more! Shaggeth and earneth moreeth. Yes, and they're like, you doing this for free when we could be making money. I mean, he's not wrong. You might as well get paid for what you like. Yeah. But still, that's his daughter. I mean, it is gross. She doesn't get to choose the punters or anything, does she? Well, I, no. No, probably not, no. No. She's probably got to shag, shag a load of old dudes and sweaty dudes. and Oh, it's the smelly dudes. Cheesy. Oh, what's the word? What's the thing? Knob cheese. No. Smeg. Oh, no, the name, chode. Is it chode? Oh, I bet they all had chodes. Oh, I bet they are so many chodes. Chody chodes. Chode cheese. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, apparently it's quite a common punishment for females that decide to try before they buy, I suppose, before they got married. But he soon brought her back home. Despite the fact that she was punished for it, it wasn't actually considered too much of a problem to actually find her a husband. Well, she's experienced now. Yeah, she knows what she's doing. So once she got back, she was soon married. So while the family was busy with her siblings, Seda was no longer the centre of attention. So she was often left to her own devices compared to like before. So she soon fell in with a group of teenagers. Not teenagers. Oh, fucking worst. <laughs> no. She was also a teenager, though. Oh, Jesus. So. Pack of them. A lot of. I think of all the angst Ugh. and all the. All the BO and all the spots. So at the age of 14, during one of her outings with the group, her group of friends, she was raped by one of her acquaintances. Oh, Jesus. Mm. Her parents initially defended and supported her, but she became a difficult teenager, probably because she was traumatized from being raped. As Seda became more irresponsible and uncontrollable, her parents sold her to a geisha house in Yokohama in 1922. Oh, God, can you imagine just selling your kids? Like, you're a bit of a nuisance, right? You're acting like a teenager. Let me throw you away. Yeah, because you've been raped. You're, you're bugging me Yeah, with your trauma. Nah. Fuck off. Oh, dear. Yeah. Right? So, 
Their justification was it would help her find her place in society and give her some direction. Sarah's oldest sister would say, so Toku said that it actually suited Seda because she always wished to become a geisha anyway. Seda herself, however, claimed that her father made her a geisha as punishment for sleeping around, even though she was raped. Yeah. Seda's encounter with the geisha world would completely shatter her dreams of it being a glamorous lifestyle. It proved to be frustrating and extremely disappointing. To become a true star among geisha required apprenticeship from childhood, with years spent training and studying arts and music. Seda never progressed beyond a low rank, and one of her main duties was to provide sex for clients. She worked for five years in this capacity and eventually contracted syphilis. She would have to undergo regular physical examinations just as a legally licensed sex worker would have to do as well. So apparently sex workers could earn a little bit more in pocket than a geisha, than like a low-ranking geisha could. So she decided to leave the geisha house and began work as a sex worker. Knowing that she had syphilis? Yeah. Well, that's not great. Yeah, well, everyone must have had it if they'd gone somewhere like that. So, yeah, she began work as a sex worker in Osaka's famous to be a brothel district. But she soon gained a reputation to be a bit of a troublemaker, stealing clients' money and, like, constantly leaving the brothel and coming back or leaving and then being tracked down by the well-organised legal sex worker system. Like, like sex worker security will go and get you and bring you back to the brothel. I think they're kind of, like, contracted to that brothel and kind of a prisoner to it. You can't really do what you want. So after two years there, she decided that she wanted to escape. So she wanted out of the sex worker industry and began working as a waitress. However, she wouldn't be satisfied with the wages because it's nowhere near the same money and soon began working as a sex worker again. Although now unlicensed so she began working in the unlicensed brothels in 1932 seda's mother died in january 1933 and she traveled to tokyo to visit her father and visit her mother's grave at the same time she started working as a sex worker in tokyo and also while she was there she became a mistress for the first time When her father became gravely ill two years later, she nursed him until his death. Well, she's very forgiving, considering he sold her. Yeah. Later that same year, she would be arrested in a police raid on the unlicensed brothel that she was working at at the time. A man called Kinosuke Kaza, a well-connected friend of the brothel owner, had a crush on Seda and arranged for her release. Well, she's dead sexy, crawling with cephalus and everything, isn't she? Like, ooh. I think she wasn't kind of having the physical signs of syphilis really yet. Because I think that's why she had to keep going for these exams. I don't know how they treated it back then. No idea. It wouldn't have been a cure anyway, but... Yeah. I don't think she was like cauliflower. Cauliflower vagina quite yet. Like, all 
crazy and shit. Makes you lose your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, if it goes to your brain. I think it's quite a long disease, though, isn't it? Don't you have it for a long time? I mean, I don't don't know. (laughs) Never had it. (laughs) After Kinosuke found out that Seda had no debt, he decided to ask her to become his mistress, which kind of made me laugh because he was like, oh, she's financially responsible. I want her as my mistress now. Yep. So he set her up with her own house and also nice. provided her with an income. So sugar daddy, quids in. Lucky bitch. Yeah. <laughs> this is what he'd later say about her. She was really strong, a real powerful one. Even though I'm pretty jaded, she was enough to astound me. She wasn't satisfied unless we did it two, three or four times a night. To her was unacceptable unless I had my hand on her private parts all night long. At first it was great, but after a couple of weeks I got a little exhausted. I bet, poor guy. Nah, he needs to man the fuck up. (laughs) Finger her, she loves it. Yeah. (laughs) Finger her, she loves it. When Seder suggested that he should leave his wife and marry her, he refused. So she was like, well, fuck you then. Allow me to have another lover. She's a bit of a nymphomaniac. Yeah, well, she was like, well, if you can't satisfy me and finger me all night, well, I want another lover. And he didn't agree with that. Yeah, but she's already she's, not, she's already having sex like four times a day and fingering all night. What more does she it's want? not enough. Jesus. She just wants more. He probably doesn't make her come. That's the issue. Yeah. You'll see a bit later. I think she is a little bit sex mad as well. <laughs> she loves the D. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But yeah, I don't blame the guy for being tired. I'm tired just thinking <laughs> about it. And he's got a wife. So, you know, he's got a little pussy to please. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Just spreading all that syphilis all around. Every day I'm syphilis. <laughs> I'm very concerned about the syphilis. I don't know if you've noticed. but Yeah, I keep thinking I mean, about the syphilis. It's a concerning matter, really, isn't it? Well, yeah. If you think about it, though, like back then, when a lot of people went, brothels were just kind of everywhere, your husband would just go out to work and would like pop to the brothel on the way home and bring you back everything that was going around there. So that's great. Ah, oh, dear. Once their relationship ended, once he couldn't satisfy her, Seda left for Nagoya. So she started living there in 1935, again intending to leave the sex industry behind in the past. She began working as a maid at a restaurant. She soon became romantically involved with a customer at the restaurant, a man called Guru Omaya, a professor and banker who aspired to become a member of parliament. But this guy couldn't satisfy her sexually. Surprise, surprise. I mean, I'm doubting that there is a man out there that can, by the sounds of it. But apparently he was just a bit like just a normal guy, or maybe under what she's used to, sexual needs. He wasn't that fussed. Bit chody. Yeah, a bit chody. So yeah, he couldn't satisfy her, so she moved back to Tokyo to work as an apprentice in a restaurant. So she started working at a restaurant called the Yoshidaya Restaurant on the 1st of February 1936. So the owner of this establishment was Kishizo Ishida, 
who was 42 at the time. He had worked his way up the business, starting as an apprentice himself at a different restaurant specialising in eel dishes. He had opened Yoshidaya in Tokyo's Nakano neighbourhood in 1920. Did you say eel dishes? Yeah, eels, the fish. Delightful. Mm, jelly deal. Nom nom nom. Yummy. Mm, so slimy. Just slides the way down. Uh, yeah, just you just eat it like a pelican, like <laughs> oh, I feel a bit sick. Um <laughs> Open your gullet down yeah. the Oh, the word gullet is disgusting. <laughs> So, by the time Seda joined this restaurant, Kishizo had become known as a womanizer. Womanizer, womanizer. I was just about to sing that. <laughs> and apparently by the time that Seda joined the restaurant, he actually wasn't doing much running of the restaurant. He was just, like, flirting with his waitresses all day. Okay. So, and the restaurant uh, was mainly being ma- managed by his wife, so she was, like, putting in all the graft. So she's working while he flirts. He flirts with everybody, yeah. So Kishizo started making sexual advantage towards Seda, and she was still feeling pretty miffed about her last relationship and being so unsatisfied. So she was all for this possible new fling. They decided to meet for a prearranged sexual encounter at a tea house or machiai, the equivalent of like a love hotel. Planning to only go for a short, you know, fling in this love hotel, the couple actually remained in bed for four days. On the night of the 27th of April, they moved to another tea house in a different neighbourhood where they continued to drink and have sex. Occasionally, they invited a few geishas to come along and sing for them. Whilst they were having sex? I assume for their break, they just want a bit of a sing-song to get them ready to go for the next sesh. Otherwise, it's a bit weird. Yeah. And then they'd also ask, like, the hotel maids to come and serve sake, you know, in between sessions. Then they next moved to the Ogun neighbourhood. They didn't actually return to work until the 8th of May, so they were out shagging constantly for two weeks that's a lot that is a lot i bet his wife was like where the fuck have you been and he was like fuck i hate just making sure i caught syphilis yeah he must have been dehydrated you know like the mummy before he becomes you know sucks all the life out of everybody he must have looked like that (laughs) drained of everything what from all the jizz all the jizz and all the sweat and all the bonking for two weeks straight. Yeah. How sore. Very sore. It just have a stump. <laughs> After their two-week fling came to an end, Seda became agitated and began drinking excessively. She said that she had fallen in love for the first time in her life oh, and her. was sure that it was true love. The thought of Kishizo being back with his wife made her intensely jealous. So jealous that she decided that she must kill her lover 
to show him what happens when he goes back to his own wife. Hang on. She, so she shagged this guy. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Decided she's in love with him. Yeah. And now he must die. And now she's going to kill him. Just yeah. to say, oh, I love you, but now you're dead. Yeah. Well, she's like, I really want to kill you because I love you so much. So to kind of get herself over this, she went to go see a geisha play to take her mind off Kishizo's massive dick. That she wants to murder. That she wants so badly that she'd rather murder him. Just doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't. I've, I've understood the wife. Yeah. Murder yeah. the wife. I mean, obviously, poor woman. She's just trying to get a job done and run a restaurant. I don't think she even cares. So what happens is she went to this geisha play and in the play, uh, the geisha kills her lover with a large knife that she kept like in a little handbag. I don't think she chose the right play to go and see. No. So this gave Seder a light bulb moment. So she organized to meet, meet up with Kishiza a few days later on the 11th of May. Once they were talking, she pulled out this huge kitchen knife and threatened Kashiza with it, just like in the play. However, Kashiza found this extremely hot, and they both ended up back in a love hotel for two nights. I'm just very confused. Yeah, so I think he was like, oh, stab me, will you? (laughs) So now they start choking each other. Oh, Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and then after doing that, two days into it, they decided to start erotic asphyxiation. She tried it on him, and then she had him do it to her as well. On the evening of the 16th of May, Seda used part of her, like, kimono to cut off his breathing during orgasm, and they both really enjoyed it. They repeated this for hours, but then after one point, Seda stopped the strangulation Kashiza's face was all distorted and wouldn't return to its normal appearance. He wasn't dead, but he took 30 tablets of a sedative called Calmotin to try and soothe his pain because they keep strangling each other and pulling their faces and, and everything. I think they're actually in pain by now. According to Seda, he said to her as he was like completely drugged up, When I go to sleep, you need to pull the cord around my neck and squeeze it while I'm sleeping. If you start to strangle me, don't stop, because it will be so painful afterwards. Just keep going. What the fuck? What, he was asking her to kill him? Yeah. Seda did so. On the 18th of May, as soon as he was asleep, she wrapped her sash twice around his neck and strangled him to death. It was only after this that she realised that he probably was joking. He wasn't actually serious. A bit late now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, was he joking? Mm, Well, I think he was a bit drugged up. He'd taken 30 tablets of whatever that sedative was. 30 of anything is a lot. Unless it comes to sex with these people, then 30 is not enough. Mm -hmm. So... After she killed him, she felt totally at ease, as if a heavy burden had been lifted from her shoulders. She felt a sense of clarity. After lying with his body for a few hours, she decided to sever his penis and testicles with the kitchen knife. 
and wrapped them in a magazine cover and kept them in her handbag. What the fuck? Jesus. She then got dressed in his underwear and left the inn around 8am, telling the staff not to disturb their room. Of course they went and disturbed it eventually. And the circumstances behind his death immediately caused national sensation, creating like a media frenzy you know, and police search for Seder. And it was called the Aber Seder Panic. Aber is her last name. Police received reports of sightings of Seder in various cities, obviously meaning that there were numerous false sightings of her as well. So one of the false sightings nearly caused a stampede and it also resulted in a large traffic jam, <laughs> which I just thought was random. So Seder, walking around with this guy's penis, she didn't just carry his penis around, she also performed necrophilic acts on it. She Why? used it as a dildo. Mate, but it's flaccid and chopped off. It's not going to be... What joy you get... Oh, my God, what a fucking yeah. weirdo. And then she was sad that it wouldn't work properly. Yeah, no shit, fucking Sherlock. Yeah. So she decided that she would flee to Osaka and would jump off a cliff while holding on to his penis. It makes perfect sense. Is she okay? <laughs> not She's not okay. Not. <laughs> she booked herself into an inn under like a fake name. The fake name was so fake that local police became suspicious of it and came to her room. So once they came in her room, she said, Don't be so formal. You're looking for Seder, right? Well, that's me. I'm Seder Aber. So when police weren't convinced, she went and got out the dude's penis and waved it in their faces and were like, See? Here's the penis. <laughs> Seda told police the whole story. When they asked why she had severed Kashizo's genitalia, she replied, It's because I couldn't take his head or body with me. I wanted to take the part of him that brought back the most vivid memories. So romantic. So yucky. <sighs> so that when the details gross. of the crime were made public, rumours began to circulate that his penis was of an extraordinary size. However, the police officer who interrogated Seda after her arrest denied this and he said that it was just average. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Poor guy. <Yeah. laughs> Dead and just an average dick. Yeah. yeah. Seda said that it wasn't the size that counted. It was his need to please her. There we are. That's why she was so in love. The first day of her trial was on the 25th of November, 1936. And at 5am, crowds were already gathering to attend. It's really random. The judge presiding over the trial admitted to being sexually aroused by some of the details involved in the case. What the Why? fuck? Yet made sure that the trial was held with the utmost seriousness. Why is he admitting to that? Yeah, that's not something you're sharing, is it? Oh, I will admit that I was a little bit sexually aroused. <laughs> Why? Why? So weird, isn't it? Seda's statement before receiving sentencing 
This is a quote. The thing I regret the most about the incident is that I have come to be misunderstood as some sort of sexual pervert. Because you are. There has never been any man in my life like him. There were men I liked, men who I slept with without accepting money, but none made me feel the way I did towards him. See, Mm -hmm. I just think a lot of this was the trauma and abuse of being sent away to become a sex worker by your father. Oh, I mean, it all started with that, didn't it, really? Absolutely. I just, so she was like, she's finally got feelings for someone, so she has to kill him. Obviously, there's mental illness somewhere no. in there. You don't, Do you, you don't, think? You don't cut off a penis just willy, willy-nilly, <laughs> do we? She asked to be executed, but the court sentenced her to just over six years. Fucking hell, is that it? Yeah, no. The sentence was eventually commuted and Sadie walked free after serving just five years in prison. What the fuck? Yeah. After her release, Sayida capitalised on her notoriety by sitting for an interview in a popular magazine and she did all bits and bobs, uh, like shows and stuff, profiting off it. I don't know if bits and bobs is the appropriate word here. (laughs) (laughs) She did do bits and bobs, She did, yeah. So she eventually got fed up of that and wanted to keep a low profile she started working in a working class pub in downtown Tokyo. She lived a low profile life in that area for the next 20 years until she disappeared from the public eye in 1970. People were looking for her and apparently she was reported to be living in a nunnery. I did find one source that said that They'd found her and her head was shaved. I think she was in like the more advanced stages of syphilis by that point. She died sometime after 1970, but no one knows when she actually died. That's the story of Seda Aber. Well, thanks, Bex. Yeah. That was odd. <laughs> you know why I had to tell you, though? Oh, God, yeah. Well, if it's involving that kind of stuff, you've got to tell us. But I think the thing that bothered me the most about that was the judge just openly going, oh, yeah, this is turning me on. Got me, got my juices flowing. It's like, just shut up, man, if if it has done. When it's a judge saying it, I'm like, well, you're not allowed to say that. I mean, I know it was back then, but oh my God. He just didn't need to share that information, did he? Like, have a wank over it at home, fine, you do you. Let's not talk about that in the courtroom. So odd. Mm. Anyway, thanks, Bex. Thanks, Bex. No problem. Do you want to try and stump us with one of your horror songs? Yeah. I don't know if stump was the right word after (laughs) dick amputation, was it? (laughs) Or the best word of all. Yeah. Right, are you ready? I'm ready. Born ready, ma'am. Welcome. Here where shadows rise and darkness creeps in on you. The air is thick with eerie silence, broken only by the rustling of unseen creatures lurking through the trees. Watch what you touch here as everything is full of disease. Here you are in the jungle where all are welcome. That's it. Sorry, it's really short, but I wasn't quite ready. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm just trying to think what it could be. Well, thank you. 
Thank you, Becky. Welcome, you all. I will put all the details to our social media in the details of this episode, and you can contact us if you know the answer to that horror song. Oop. Yup. Right, should we let the people go? Yeah. Bye. Bye, people. See you later. Have a nice life. Yeah. (laughs) But stay safe. Don't kill people. Don't chop off people's dicks. (laughs) And keep it weird. But not bad. You bet they're what? Shitting themselves. I thought you said, I bet they're clitting themselves. <laughs> I think you're, that's a porno. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what. That's why they're so buff, that. because they're resisting the urge to clit themselves. <laughs> to clit themselves. They have to in the name Sorry. of Jesus. Oh God, we're going to hell. Oh, I love nuns. There's some nuns that live up the road from uh, my mother-in-law's house and we see them walk by the house. Oh, really? Yeah. I love seeing them go by. Their dog always barks at them. Though. The dog's like, no, no nuns. <laughs> Got a lot in common with you, Tash, really, hasn't she? <laughs> what, working in rush- restaurants in 1936? Rush- well, no, she's going from restaurant to sex work to... Tasha hasn't been the a girl's sex got to make a before. living. Well, that's not what she said the other week. <laughs> Did I fall asleep uh-huh. when she's talking about that? You know, when I told she's... Darren that my... I was saying... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Her Russian prostitute's name. Yeah. Oh, dear. But you said that you weren't. So, it could just all be a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Becky's like, oh, done. I'm done. Have you never heard of Panicking Pig? It's a horrible name, a horrible sound. I have, but your delayed reaction really made me laugh. Like, you were really, really imagining. Yeah. <laughs> I always really do you not really imagine what Emma's saying yeah of course I do but like I'm already imagining it before she says can you imagine that <laughs> <laughs> right let's carry on I'm sorry Emma I'm sorry this is a really scary one it's fine sorry. it's fine <laughs> Sada never pro- Progressed. Hold on. Save it. Progressed. Progressed. You're right, Sean. Yeah. Seder. <laughs> Seder never progressed about her own rank. <laughs>